0: We've all gone to websites only to be presented with a pop-up asking if we'll accept the cookies. Well, did you know that by accepting those cookies, you're allowing that website to collect data on you? These websites will then sell your information to data brokers, who will then create a digital profile of you which can be used by banks, advertisers, and scammers against you. Well, thanks to Incogni, you no longer need to worry about your data being stolen and sold. Incogni is a tool that will remove your data from these companies for you. All you need to do is sign up, allow Incogni to work for you, and they will contact data brokers on your behalf and guarantee that your digital ID is removed from the internet. Use the link in the description and episode notes and get a Cogni today for $6.49 per month on a year plan and protect your data and digital ID. Have you ever been traveling overseas, logged into your favorite streaming service and realized your favourite show isn't there. Different countries have different streaming rights, so just because you can watch Breaking Bad at home doesn't mean you can watch it overseas. Well, with Surfshark, you can. Surfshark is the VPN that I use every single day. I simply choose from one of their 3,200 plus servers in 100 countries and get back to watching the favourite shows that I love. Use the link in the description or the episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 per month on a two-year plan, and get back to watching the shows that you love. Hello, and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. This show is brought to you by my store, where you can purchase all of my audiobooks for five bucks, and you can also now purchase merch, with all of the beautiful comics designed by Valentina Angel Rios, And by buying those things, you're not only supporting this show, but you're also supporting her because we share the profits 50-50 because she's a fantastic artist and she's an even better person and she deserves it more than anyone else. So if you want to support the show, go to the link in the description box and let's dive in. Trigger warning. This book was written in the 1950s and contains views and words that were used in that time period. I do not agree with these words and views and would never use them in my daily life. I shall be ducking the audio to bleep any offensive language so that this book can be uploaded to its appropriate platforms, but apart from that, the book will stay as it was intended to be read. If you find this sort of language disturbing or triggering, then please listen to another audiobook. Thank you for your understanding, Isaac. Up on Disturbed, there's an everlasting high-pitched machine room clatter, a prison mill stamping out license plates, and time is measured out by the diduck diduck of a ping-pong table. Men pacing their personal runways, get up to a wall and dip a shoulder and turn and pace back to the other wall, dip a shoulder and turn back again. Fast, short steps, wearing crisscrossing ruts in the tile floor with a look of caged thirst. There's a singed smell of men, scared berserk and out of control. And in the corners and under the ping pong table, there's things crouched, gnashing their teeth that doctors and nurses can't see and the aides can't kill with disinfectant. When the ward door opened, I smelled that singed smell and heard that gnash of teeth. A tall, bony guy, dangling from a wire between his shoulder blades, met McMurphy and me at the door when the aides brought us in. He looked us over with yellow, scaled eyes and shook his head. I wash my hands of the whole deal, he told one of the colored aides, and the wire drug him off down the hall. We followed him down to the day room, and Murphy stopped at the door and spread his feet and tipped his head back to look things over. He tried to put his thumbs in his pocket, but the cuffs were too tight. It's a sane, he said out of the side of his mouth. I nodded my head. I'd seen it all before. A couple of the guys pacing stopped to look at us, and the old bony man came dragging by again, washing his hands of the whole deal. Nobody paid as much mind at first. The a's went off to the nurses' station, leaving us standing in the day room. McMurphy's eye was puffed, gave him a steady wink, and I could tell it hurt his lips to grin. He raised his cuffed hands and stood looking at the clatter of movement and took a deep breath. McMurphy's the name, partners, he said in his drawling cowboy actor's voice, and the thing I want to know is who's the peckwood who runs poker games in this establishment? The ping-pong clock died down in a rapid ticking on the floor. I don't deal blackjack so good, I like this, but I maintain I'm a fire-eater in a stir-game. He yawned, hissed his shoulder, bent down, and cleared his throat, and spat something at a waste-paper can five feet away. It rattled in with a ting, and he straightened up again, grinned, and licked his tongue at the bloody gap in his teeth. I had a run-in downstairs. Me and the chief locked horns with two grease monkeys. All the stamp-mill racket had stopped by this time, and everybody was looking toward the two of us at the door. McMurphy drew eyes to him like a sideshow barker. Beside him, I found that I was obliged to be looked at too, and with people staring at me, I felt I had to stand up straight and tall as I could. That made my back hurt where I'd fallen in the shower with the black boy on me, but I didn't let on. One hungry looker with a head of shaggy black hair came up and held his hand like he figured I had something for him. I tried to ignore him, but he kept running around in front of me whichever way I turned, like a little kid holding that empty hand cupped out to me. May Murphy talked a while about the fight, and my back got to hurting more and more. I hunkered in my chair in the corner for so long, it was hard to stand up straight very long. I was glad when that little jet nurse came in to take us into the nurse's station, and I got a chance to sit and rest. She asked if we were calm enough for her to take off the cuffs, and May Murphy nodded. He'd slumped over with his head hung and his elbows between his knees, and looked completely exhausted. It hadn't occurred to me that it was just as hard for him to stand straight as it was for me. The nurse, about as big as the small end of nothing, whittled down to a fine point, as McMurphy put it later, undid our cuffs, and gave McMurphy a cigarette, and gave me a stick of gum. She said that she remembered I chewed gum. I didn't remember her at all. McMurphy smoked while she dipped her hand full of pink birthday candles into a jar of salve and worked over his cuffs, flinching every time he flinched and telling him she was sorry. She picked up one of his hands in both of hers and turned it over and sawed his knuckles. Who was it? She asked, looking at the knuckles. Was it Washington or Warren? May Murphy looked up at her. Washington, he said and grinned. The chief here took care of Warren. She put his hand down and turned to me. I could see the little bird bones in her face. Are you her anywhere? I shook my head. What about Warren and Williams? May Murphy told her he thought they might be sporting some plaster the next time she saw them. She nodded and looked at her feet. It's not all like her, Ward, she said. A lot of it is, but not all. Army nurses trying to run an army hospital. They're all a little sick themselves. I sometimes think all single nurses should be fired after they reach 35. At least all single army nurses, McMurphy added. He asked how long we could expect to have the pleasure of her hospitality. Not very long, I'm afraid. Not very long, you're afraid? May Murphy asked her. Yes. I like to keep men here sometimes instead of sending them back. But she is seniority. No, you probably won't be very long. I mean, like you are now. The bed's undisturbed, or I'll add a tune. Too taut or too loose. We were assigned beds next to each other. They didn't tie a sheet across me. No, they left a little dim light on near my bed. Halfway through the night, somebody screamed. I'm starting to spin, engine, Look at me. Look at me. I opened my eyes and saw a set of long yellow teeth glowing right in front of my face. It was the hungry looking guy. I'm starting to spin. Look at me. The aides got him from behind. Two of them. Dragged in laughing and yelling out of the dorm. I'm starting to spin, engine! <laughs> then just laugh. He kept saying it and laughing all the way down the hall till the dorm was quiet again. And I could hear that one other guy saying, Well, I washed my hands of the whole deal. You had a buddy there for a second, Chief, and Murphy whispered, and rolled over to sleep. I couldn't sleep much the rest of the night. I kept seeing those yellow teeth, that guy's hungry face, asking to look me. Look me! Or, finally, as I did get to sleep, just asking. That face, just a yellow, starved need, come looming out of the dark in front of me, wanting things, asking things. I wondered how McMurphy slept, plagued by a hundred faces like that, or two hundred or thousand. They've got an alarm undisturbed to wake up the patients. They don't just turn on the lights like downstairs. This alarm sounds like a giant pencil sharpener grinding up something awful. My Murphy and I both sat up bolt right when we heard it, and were about to lie down when a loudspeaker called for the two of us to come into the nurses' station. I got out of bed, and my back had stiffened up overnight to where I could barely bend. I could tell by the way McMurphy gimped around that he was as stiff as I was. What they got on the program for us now, chief? He asked. The boot? The rack? I hope nothing too strenuous, because, man, I'm stove up bad. I told him it wasn't strenuous, but I didn't tell him anything else, because I wasn't sure myself till I got to the nurse's station. And the nurse, a different one, said, Mr. McMurphy and Mr. Bramden, then handed each of us a little paper cup. I looked in mine, and there were three of those red capsules. This tussing whirs in my head. I can't stop. Hold on, Mary Murphy says. These are those knockout pills, aren't they? The nurse nods, twists her head to check behind her. There's two guys waiting with ice tongs, hunching forward with their elbows linked. Mr Murphy hands back the cup, says... No, sir, ma'am. But off the go, the blindfold. Could use a cigarette, though. I hand mine back, too. And she says she must phone. And she slips the glass door between us. Is that the phone before anybody can say anything else? I'm sorry if I got you into something, Chief, me Murphy says. And I barely can hear him over the noise of the phone wires whistling in the walls. I can feel the scared, downhill rush of thoughts in my head. We're sitting in the day room, those faces around us in a circle. When in the door comes the big nurse herself, the two big black boys on either side, a step behind her. I try to shrink down in my chair away from her, but it's too late. Too many people are looking at me, sickly eyes holding me where I sit. Good morning, she says, got her old smile back now. And my Murphy says good morning, and I keep quiet, even though she says good morning to me too. Out loud. I'm watching the black boys. One has tape on his nose and his arm in a sling. Gray hand dripping out of the cloth like a drowned spider. And the other one is moving like he's got some kind of cast around his ribs. They're both grinning a little. Probably could have stayed home with their hurts, but wouldn't miss this for nothing. I grin back just to show him. The big nurse talks to McMurphy, soft and patient about the irresponsible thing he did. The childish thing. Throwing a tantrum like a little boy. Aren't you ashamed? He says he guesses not and tells her to get on with it. She talks to him about how they, the patients downstairs on our ward, at a special group meeting yesterday afternoon, agreed with the staff that it might be beneficial that he receive some shock therapy. Unless he realizes his mistakes. All he has to do is admit he was wrong. To indicate demonstrate rational contact, and the treatment would be cancelled. This time. That circle of faces waits and watches. The nurse says it's up to him. Yeah, he says. You got a paper I can sign? Well, no, but if you feel it's necessary, and why don't you add some other things while you add it? Get them out of the way. Things like, oh, me being part of a plot to overthrow the government. And how I think life on your ward is the sweetest goddamn life on this side of Hawaii. You know, that sort of crap. I don't believe that would... Then, after I sign, you bring me a blanket and a pack of Red Cross cigarettes. Oh, wait! Those Chinese commies could have learned a thing from you, lady. Randall, we are trying to help you. But he's on his feet, scratching at his belly, walking on past her, and the black boy's rearing back toward the cart table. Okay... Well, 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 where's this poker table, buddies? The nurse stares after him for a moment, then walks into the nurse's station to use the phone. Two colored aides and a white aide with curly blonde hair walk us over to the main building. But Murphy talks with the white aide on the way over, just like he isn't worried about a thing. There's a frost thick on the grass, and the two colored aides in front trail puffs of breath like locomotives. The sun wedges apart some of the clouds and lightens up the frost till the ground are scattered with sparks. Sparrows, fluffed out against the cold, scratching among the sparks for seeds. We cut across the crackling grass, past the digger squirrel holes, where I saw the dog. Cold sparks, frost down the holes, clear out of sight. I feel that frost in my belly. We get up to that door, and there's a sound behind it, like bees stirred up. Two men in front of us, really under the red capsules. One bawling like a baby, saying, It's my cross! Thank you, Lord! That's all I got! Thank you, Lord! The other guy waiting is saying, Gutsball! Gutsball! He's the lifeguard from the pool. And he's crying a little, too. I won't cry or yell. Not with McMurphy here. The technician asks us to take off our shoes. And McMurphy asks me if we got our pants lit, and our head shaved, too. The technician says no such luck. The metal door looks out with its rivet eyes. The metal door opens, sucks the first man inside. The lifeguard won't budge. A beam, like neon smoke, comes out of the black panel room, fastens on its cleat-marked forehead, and drags him like a dog on a leash. The beam spins him round three times before he closes, and his face is scrambled fear. Hut one, he grunts. Hut two, hut three. I hear them pry up his forehead like a manhole cover, clash and snarl of jammed cogs. Smoke blows the door open, and a gurney comes out with the first man on it. And he rakes me with his eyes. That face. The gurney goes back in and brings the lifeguard out. I can hear the yell leader spelling out his name. The technician says, Next group. The floor's cold, frosted, crackling. Up above, the light winds, tube, long and white and icy. I can smell the graphite salve. Like the smell in a garage, I can smell the acid of fear. There's only one window, up high, small, and outside I can see those puffy sparrows sprung up on a wire, like brown beads. Their heads sunk in the feathers against the cold. Something goes to blowing wind over my hollow bones, higher and higher. Air raid! Air raid! Don't holler, chief. Air raid! Take her easy. I'll go first. Must go too thick for them to hurt me. If they can't hurt me, they can't hurt you climbs on the table without any help and spreads his arms out to fit the shadow. A switch snaps the clasps on his wrists' ankles, clamping him into the shadow. A hand takes off his wristwatch, one it from Scanlon, drops it near the panel. It springs open, cogs and wheels, and long, dribbling spiral of springs jumping against the side of the panel and sticking fast. He don't look the bit scared. He keeps grinning at me. They put the graphite salve on his temples. Uh, what, what is this, he says. Conductant, the technician says. Anointest my head with conductant. Do I get a crown of thorns? They smear it on. He's singing to them. Makes their hands shake. Get the Wildrew cream, Charlie. Put on those things like headphones crown of silver thorns over the graphite at his temples. They try to hush his singing with a piece of rubber hose for him to bite on. Made for the toothling, landle Twists Twist some dials, and the machine trembles. Two robot arms pick up the smoldering irons and hunch down on him. He gives me the wink and speaks to me, muffled. Tells me something, says... Something to me around that rubber hose just as the irons get close enough to the silver on his temples. Light arcs across, stiffens him, bridges him up off the table, till nothing is down but his wrists and ankles, and out around that crimped black rubber hose, a sound like hoo And he's frosted over completely with sparks. And out the window the sparrows drop, smoking off the wire. They roll him out onto a gurney, still jerking, face frosted white. Corrosion. Battery acid. The technician turns to me. Watch out for that other moose. I know him. Hold him. It's not a willpower thing anymore. Hold him! Damn! No more of these boys without sectional! The clamp bites my wrist and ankles. The graphite salve has iron fillings in it. Temple scratching. He said something, then winked. Told me something. The man bends over. Brings two irons towards the ring on my head. The machine haunches on me. Air raid! Hit at a lope. Running already down the slope. Can't get back. Can't go back. Look down the barrel and you're dead. 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 We gotta come up out of the bull reeds. Run beside the railroad track. I lay an ear to the track, and it burns my cheeks. Nothing either way, I say. Hundred miles. Hump, Papa says. Didn't we used to listen for buffaloes by sticking a knife in the ground? Cash the handle in our teeth. Hear a herd way off. Hump, he says again. But he's tickled. Out across the other side of the track... A fence row of wheat chats from the last winter. Out across the other side of the track, a fence row of wheat chats from the last winter. Mice under that stuff, the dog says. Do we go up the track or down the track, boy? We go across. That's what the old dog says. That dog don't heal. He'll do. There's birds over there. That's what the old dog says. Better humping up the track bank. That's what your old man says. Best ride across the chat of wheat, the dog tells me. Across. Next thing I know, there's people all over the track, blasting away at pheasants like anything. Seems our dog got too far out ahead and runs all the birds out of the chat to the track. Dog got three mice. Man, 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 man. Broad and big, with a wink like a star. Ants again. Jesus, I got him bad this time. Prickle-footed bastards. Remember the time we found those ants? Tasted like dill pickles, <laughs> eh? Yeah? You said it wasn't dill pickles, and I said it was. And your mama kicked the living tar out of me when she heard, teachin' a kid to eat bugs? Ugh. Good injun boy should know how to survive on anything he can eat. Won't eat him first. We ain't Indians. We're civilized, and you remember it. You told me, Papa. When I die, pin me up against the sky. Mama's name was Bromden. Still is Bromden. Papa said he was born with only one name. Born smack into it, the way a calf drops out of a spreaded blanket when the cow insists on sitting up. T.R. Miller Tuna, the pine that stands tallest on the mountain. And I'm the biggest, by God, Indian in the state of Oregon. Probably California and Idaho. Born right into it. You're the biggest by-God fool if you think a good Christian woman takes on a name like T.R. Milatuna. You were born into a name. So, okay, I'm born into a name. Bromden. Mary Louise Bromden. And when we move into town, Papa says, that name makes getting a social security card a lot easier. Guy's after somebody with a rivet hammer. Gets him, too, if he keeps at it. I see those lightning flashes again. Colors striking. Tingle. 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 Tingle tangle toes. She's a good fisherman. Catches hens, put them in a pens. Wire, blier. Limber lock. Three geese in a flock. One flew east, one flew west. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. O-U-T spells out. Goose swoops down and plucks you out. My old grandma chanted this. A game we played by the hours. Sitting by the fish racks, scaring flies. A game called Tingle Tingle Tangle Toes. Counting each finger on my two outspread hands. One finger to a syllable as she chants. Tingle Tingle Tangle Toes. Seven fingers. She's a good fisherman, catches hens, sixteen fingers, tapping a finger on each beat with the back of her crab hand, each of my fingernails, looking up at her, like a little face, asking to be the you that the goose swoops down on and plucks out. I like the game. And I like Grandma. I don't like Mrs. Tangletoes catching hens. I don't like her. I do like the goose flying over the cuckoo's nest. I like him. And I like Grandma, dust in her wrinkles. The next time I saw her, she was stone-cold dead. Right in the middle of the Dallas, on the sidewalk. Colored shirts, standing around. Some Indians, some cattlemen, some wheatmen. They cart her down to the city burying ground, roll red clay in her eyes. I remember hot, still electric storm afternoons when jackrabbits ran under diesel truck wheels. Joey Fish-in-a-Barrel has $20,000, and three Cadillacs since the contract. And he can't drive none of them. I see a dice. I see it from the inside. Me at the bottom. I'm the weight, loading the dice to throw that number one up there above me. They got the dice loaded to throw a snake ice. And I'm the load. Six lumps around me, like the white pillow is the other side of the dice. The number six that will always be down when he throws. What's the other dice loaded for? I bet it's loaded to throw one, too. Snake eyes. They're shooting with crookies against him. And I'm the load. Look out. Here comes a toss. Aye, lady, the smokehouse is empty, and a baby needs a new pair of opera pumps. Coming for ya! (sighs) Crapped out. Water. I'm lying in a puddle. Snake eyes. Caught him again. I see that number one up above me. You can't whip frozen dice behind the feed store in an alley in Portland. The alley is a tunnel. It's cold because the sun is late afternoon. Let me go see Grandma. Please, Mama. What was it he said when he winked? One flew east, one flew west. Don't stand in my way. Damn it, nurse. Don't stand in my way. Way. My role. <sighs> Damn. Twisted again. Snake eyes. The school teacher tells me you've got a good head, boy. Be something. Be what, Papa? A rug weaver like Uncle R. and J. Wolf? A basket weaver? Or another drunken Indian? Attendant, you're Indian, aren't you? Yeah, that's right. Well, I must say, you speak the language quite well. Yeah. Well, Three dollars a regular. They wouldn't be so cocky if they knew what me and the moon have goin'. No damned regular Indian. He, who, what was it? Walks out a step, hears another drum. Snake eyes again. Oh boy, these dice are cold. After grandma's funeral, me and papa and uncle running and jumping wolf dug her up. Mama wouldn't go with us. She never heard of such a thing. Hanging a corpse in a tree? It's enough to make a person sick. Uncle R. J. Wolf and Papa spent 20 days in the drunk tank at the Dallas Jail, playing Rummy for violation of the dead. But she's our goddamned mother. It doesn't make the slightest difference, boys. You should have left her buried. I don't know when you blamed Indians will learn. Now, where is she? You better tell. Ah, go fuck yourself, pale face. Uncle R and J said, rolling himself a cigarette. I'll never tell. High, high, high in the trees. High, high, high in the hills. High in a pine tree bed. She's tracing the wind with that old hand. Counting the clouds with that old chant. Three geese in a flock. What did you say to me when you winked? Band playing. Look, the sky. It's the 4th of July. Dice at rest. They got to me with the machine again. I wonder, what did he say? Wonder how McMurphy made me big again. He said guts ball. They're out there. Black boys in white suits. Peeing under the door. On me. Come in later and accuse me of soaking all six pillows I'm lying on. Number six. I thought the room was a dice. The number one. The snake eye up there. The circle. The white light in the ceiling is what I've been seeing. In this little square room. I mean, just after dark. How many hours have I been out? It's fogging a little, but I won't slip off and hide in it. No. Never again. I stand. Stood up slowly feeling numb between the shoulders. The white pillows on the floor of the seclusion room were soaked from me peeing on them while I was out. I couldn't remember all of it yet, but I rubbed my eyes with the heels of my hand and tried to clear my head. I worked at it. I'd never worked at coming off it before. I staggered towards the little round chicken-wired window in the door of the room and tapped it with my knuckles. I saw a need coming up the hall with a tray for me and knew this time I had them beat. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, do subscribe because there's more to come. And if you're listening on podcast, please leave a review, five stars preferred, but you've got free will, do as you please. Uh, that was a intense chapter. Um, it got a bit difficult to follow, but you just sort of need to know that he was hallucinating because his brain had just been fried by an electrical shock and that this is something people used to do. The past was the worst. But uh, we've got two chapters to go. Let's see how how the boys get on. See you very soon. Once again, thank you for listening. And until next time, bye-bye.